The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today, we're on location at Fort McCord, Franklin County. In 1756, Indian warriors attacked Pennsylvania settlers here at McCord's Fort. Days later, the two sides met again at the Battle of Sidling Hill. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the battles of Fort McCord and Sidling Hill are historian Andrew Newman and Junietta archaeologist Jonathan Burns. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Uh, Andrew, your second time guest, remind us a little bit about your background. Um, yeah, um, hi Brady, uh, my name's Andrew Newman. I, I live in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania here. Um, uh, currently I work for the Army, but my past, uh, I was uh, at uh, Gettysburg National Military Park. And before that, I worked at the Nas National Baseball Hall of Fame. And uh, for graduate school, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. Um, the, the history in this area is something that's really dear to my heart, especially places like Fort McCord, where you can really go and, and really feel the, uh, the 1750s. Um, it's a very exciting place. John? I'm an archaeologist at Juniata College, and um, I got into exploring the archaeology of the French and Indian War here in central Pennsylvania because we're right in the midst of it. So I started um, doing some archaeology field schools at Fort Shirley and uh, it kind of blossomed into working on other forts like Fort Littleton and looking at roads on the um, Forbes Road uh, forts as well as fortifications that went along with uh, anything between 1754 to 1758 really is um, the archaeological slice of time that I'm interested in tracking material culture kind of across the, the frontier. Uh, it's a beautiful day. We're in this wonderful, quiet area. Uh, hasn't changed much since the 1750s. So what was life like here in the 1750s? In the 1750s, in this valley, uh, some refer to as the Great Valley, um, the Cumberland Valley. Um, uh, today, it's Franklin County. Back in the 1740s, 50s, it was part of Cumberland County. And it was an area where most of the settlers that were coming here were new. Um, to the colony of Pennsylvania and settling in what we've referred to as the back country uh, and building um, farming land um, that for the most part uh, historically was, was fairly cleared. Um, but uh, as apart from where they wanted to be, most of them Scot Scots-Irish, uh, they didn't want to be near Philadelphia. 
um, or they wanted to stay away from your uh, what you would refer to as government oversight. And so they saw the back country of Pennsylvania as where we are today in, in, um, in Fort McCord, just east of the Alleghenies, um, part of the Appalachian mountain chain as a really wonderful spot for them to farm and live life in an area that up to that point in the 1750s was relatively safe. John, if you were a recent immigrant uh, and you had this vast country that you could uh, settle, what would you bring with you? How would you tame a place like this? Well, if you're a settler, you're functionally trying to claim land for the empire. They need people living on the frontier, essentially, and farming and making a go of it. Um, so you would need blacksmithing skills, your farming skills, um, and also uh, some knowledge of the Native Americans, the indigenous population that you're going to be overlapping with in your activities if you're going to go that far out into the frontier. Uh, you mentioned uh, that they were trying to move away from Philadelphia. Uh, there's a tense relationship there. Can we talk about the relationship between the frontiersmen, uh, the recent immigrants, and the established people of Philadelphia? Well, in the, in the time, in um, the 1740s and 50s, in, in Philadelphia, uh, for an example, um, there was a, a feeling of, you could say, cultural bias towards the uh, Scots-Irish, uh, these new immigrants that were that were coming over, they didn't. They wanted them to colonize and settle in Pennsylvania, but not necessarily in Philadelphia. Um, and they were very happy with them settling in the backcountry, um, such as we have here at Fort McCord, because even though up to that point, this area of Pennsylvania as a colony was was safe, considering. Uh, the French uh, being uh, being just over uh, the uh, on the other side of present-day Pittsburgh, uh, it was it was considered to be a safe area. But with Empire, they they were nervous about French incursion. Uh, John, when we drive through here, we see farms today. Uh, but you might see this differently. What would you expect to find during an archaeological survey to indicate that people used to live here in the 1750s? So they would have been farmsteaders, essentially, and many of the uh, fortifications that we know as settlers' forts would have been just a very heavy log structure, maybe with some rifle slats and... Um, you know, access to water, a good spot for a cabin, but then they would have fortified it. Um, so when I'm looking for an archaeological site that dates to this time period, I want to find first the cloud of artifacts that would relate back to that time period, the buttons, um, the lead balls, the gun parts, anything that kind of, that'll clue us into 1754 to 1756, especially if you're looking for um, the buttons from um, militia or just settlers. Um, you can get a lot of information from this because they're not standardized. You're seeing like different walks of life, different uh, socioeconomic statuses. So there's lots to glean from the material culture that we can't necessarily get from the written record. And they really work in tandem to inform one another. So I would come out here and look for those artifacts. Uh, once I thought I saw enough clustering, then you have to dig and, and sort through uh, the soil, looking for more artifacts, but more importantly, looking for foundations or um, uh, trenches that would have held the palisade 
logs, for instance. Uh, and since we know that there was a fire with the attack here, there would be evidence of charred logs. And, um, you know, it's only 250 years ago, isn't that long ago archaeologically. Um, and the plow zone here, yes, the land has been farmed ever since then, uh, but you really only lose maybe 8 to 10 inches uh, of, of, you know, stratigraphically intact soil, but it's still being mixed around and the artifacts are still generally where they belong. Um, but to get, once you get below that, you can find the foundations, uh, the palisade trenches, um, the fire hearth, cooking features, latrines. People have lived here for thousands of years. I'm sure you're finding evidence from previous cultures as well. Definitely. When we were uh, doing a short field school uh, around the backside of the barn here, we found a couple projectile points that um, we know date to the late archaic period, like 4,000 years ago. So obviously people have been keying in on the springs here, and uh, they weren't even farming at that point. They were hunter-gatherers, but there was a rich environment here to capitalize on that brought their focus, their occupations as well. We can feel very isolated where we are, but the Seven Years' War, which is the event we'll be dealing with in context, is a global event. Uh, what brought about the Seven Years' War here in North America? Well, it was a, it was a struggle for empire from, uh, from the, mainly the Franco and the Anglo perspectives. Um, you have the, the, the British colonies uh, that, uh, that are looking to expand. You have French possessions that are looking to expand. And this all, this all comes together in the area uh, of what we refer to as the Ohio country, um, concentrating on the force of, at, at the Ohio. And um, how it really ignites and sets off is that you have a, a fellow who is known throughout history, uh, or particularly American history, George Washington, who gets involved in this. And by, by expanding the efforts of the colony of Virginia with trying to occupy and acquire the land at the force of the Ohio. And with, with, that, um, with that came a disastrous result Jumonville Glen, um, the, uh, the, the surprise uh, attack on, on, the, on the French and their uh, diplomat. Then you have Fort Necessity, disaster, Washington in, uh, uh, failed in that attempt in 1754. And, and then, you have, then you have the French building a fort, Fort Duquesne, at the force of the Ohio, and ultimately the British response was to send a large army under the command of uh, General Edward Braddock uh, to uh, eliminate Fort Duquesne, and ended up meeting failure as well at the Battle of Monongahela um, in 1755, and and. That really paved the way for the uh, Indian incursions into Pennsylvania and especially this, this area uh, in uh, South Central PA. Uh, we mentioned the British and the French, uh, but the Indians. Who were the Indian nations involved in this event in this area? From my perspective, uh, following George Crow and around from, uh, you know, he was all the way out in the Ohio country stirring up uh, trade and basically undercutting trade with. Um, undercutting French trade with the Ohio natives. A um, couple reasons were that the French traders were cut off from their supplies 
from naval blockades and also from trouble up in Canada. So the English um, traders had much better access to goods and could give the Native Americans uh, better deals. So they were all kind of orbiting closer to the British, uh, specifically George Crowan, who was all the way out uh, in the middle of the Ohio country um, at Pickawalani. Uh, he had a trading post there and essentially got a, a price put on his head. So um, he had to fall back, and he fell back to Alwick up in Huntington, present-day Huntington County. Um, so the Native Americans that were uh, that ultimately settled beside George Crowan were refugees. Um, they had been made refugees when the French took the point and started building Fort Duquesne, essentially. Um, the half-king, or Tana Grisson, and another leader's um, village, Queen Aliquippa, the Mingo Seneca, essentially were the only pro-British Native Americans in the colony. Um, all the other natives from the Ohio country were leaning towards the French. And um, obviously the Delaware had memory of being displaced from eastern Pennsylvania, so they all had their reasons. Um, but specifically the Mingo Seneca um, didn't like being displaced and sort of had an axe to grind with the French. And they became very, um, they could have become instrumental with Braddock's uh, expedition, and Braddock waved most of them off. A few went with Crowan and, and scouted for him. Um, but it was very important. Both Britain and France knew that the, the Indian nations who were caught in the middle of their colliding empires were really key uh, if they were going to make any progress. Well, we have a large mountain pass behind us. It's been there for a long time. It's going to stay there for a long time. These were critically important for the Indians. How did they use this, this sort of natural superhighway? War parties would have been coming from their village at Catanning once they were emboldened in 1756 after Braddock's defeat. Um, the natives would have used the valleys and also the gaps as their, you know, their highways and choke points, essentially. Any movement that traders would have known these paths as well, but these war paths would have been heavily traveled and were able to, um, they could appear, do some reconnaissance, make a hit or a raid and disappear again. And it was something that the, the frontier folks weren't really prepared to deal with. You know, it was just luck of the draw who was going to get hit, essentially. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess that um, you'd have to say that the cultural geography around here um, was dictated by the physical geography, right? These coves and these valleys are very isolated. So if you were a group of families trying to make a go of it here, you could be cut off from any sort of help. Uh, do we know the way that these paths went, and do any survive today? There are a couple examples um, of original Indian paths um, available. If you if you take um, like some of the some of the paths, like a, one one of them, for example, is the Frankstown Path. Um, was the path that actually um, Shing, uh, Chief Shingas, who we'll be talking about here in a little bit, um, took from Katanning. Um, to this direction. Um, there's a couple of paths uh, this, that exist. If you, if you take um, a period map, uh, uh, John Hochwelder's map of Indian trails um, of, the, of the colony of Pennsylvania, you can take a geography, um, uh, take a map, and, and, uh, and you can place them together. But uh, one, one um, specifically here, there's like the Tuscarora Trail, and supposedly that was the trail that the Tuscarora Indians took uh, on her way um, up to New York uh, to join the uh, Iroquois. Um, and that still exists. Uh, it's, you can take that, you can go out for Sunday and take, take, a, take a hike on that trail if you want to. But, but in, in some cases, these trails still do exist. 
You mentioned an important name for us, Shingus. Who was he? Uh, Shingus, um, Chief Shingus, uh, he was a Delaware um, in, um, uh, as, as, as was mentioned earlier, the Half King um, being around these parts. The Half King, he actually at a, at a conference in 1752, uh, Shingus was declared as king um, of the Delaware and was recognized formally by the colony of Pennsylvania. Um, this, of course, was before hostilities began. Um, he initially, as was mentioned previously here about uh, Braddock sending away um, natives who would wish to join, um, Shingus, uh, Chief Shingus was part of that as well. He, he wanted to initially join this great effort by, um, by Braddock and he was turned away. He was told that, uh, as along with the other natives, that that they really didn't have a place in the future for, in, in Braddock's opinion, um, in uh, uh, British North America. So they turned away and they, they sided with the French. Um, after Braddock's defeat, it set, it set loose any 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 inhibition was taken away from from these uh, Indians that were uh, allied with the French, such as Shingus, and the desire was there. There was no standing army in their way, and they were going to try to push the settlers off of their ancestral hunting grounds and push them as far east as they could get. If they could push them into the sea, that's what their end game was. Um, and that's really what takes us to um, some of the events that transpired, such as the Big Cove, uh, the, or the Great Cove Massacre, and what we have here, uh, what we'll be talking about with the Fort McCord. Now, we're here at, at McCord's Fort. There's the monument. Uh, what did this fort look like, and what were these kind of forts used for? These would have been um, structures that would have been looked like beefy cabins or just log cabins um, that would have had uh, protective slats um, to be able to fire from, be able to view from, and um, sometimes a, a, a palisade trench would have been dug and, and poles or posts would have been erected around um, that area immediately around uh, the structure just to give you a perimeter of defense so that when people are out in the fields and see hostile folks in the area, they can run to this and at least get behind cover. Essentially, these forts on the frontier and even forts like um, Fort Shirley and Fort Littleton were just palisade forts. They couldn't withstand cannon fire or anything like that. They were really to block small arms fire. And with these even smaller settler forts, you wouldn't expect um, a whole lot of labor to be put into the security of these things. Um, but they would leave archaeological evidence. That's what I'm interested in is the fact that you can find these builders' trenches and these foundations. Um, even if a structure didn't have a, a stone cellar and a stone foundation, you can still find evidence in the uh, in the undisturbed subsoil that can you know clue you in as to where these structures sat. Shingus and his warriors will raid the Great Cove, uh, and they'll raid here at McCord's Fort. So, could you take us through the events of what happened here, uh, and what that meant to the region? Sure. Um, the what happened here at McCord's Fort actually goes back three years prior. So this McCord's uh, Fort. April 1st, 1756, but three years before, in, uh, in 1753, 
Uh, William McCord acquired this property through through a Penn grant, um, through the William Penn, through his descendants in Philadelphia. Um, and unbeknownst to him, maybe he knew, but unbeknownst to him, we'll say, uh, there was a band of Delaware Indians that, that had used part of his property for better part of a couple hundred years as a place to hunt, as a place to uh, set aside time. Uh, they had huts established here. And what happened, he, he did not want any parts of them being here. Uh, and part of it was uh, he, as they were gone, he told them not to come back. He destroyed their huts. They come back the next season. Their huts are destroyed. Um, their huts are destroyed. They find that they build them again. He destroys them again. They are upset, um, and they flee west, most likely to uh, the major Delaware town of Catanning. Um, that's in 1753. Um, they vowed revenge and that they were going to get it one day, and that came to pass um, in 1756 when, when uh, after the Great Cove uh, massacre, um, the Delawares, Shawnee, and their uh, other um, uh, native allies saw that the opportunity was there to do as they pleased. And uh, I do not know, I don't, I don't believe it's written down who the actual, um, the uh, Delaware, if there's a, not a name associated with the Delaware who was here at the McCord site, but somehow uh, Shingus was told about what happened and they decided to act revenge. And so in March of 1756, latter, latter part of March, um, 100 Indians were, were uh, uh, they left the village of Catanning east, um, following the Frankstown path um, through the cove that they had, had, had just um, destroyed the year before. And uh, they get to the area here at the Kittatinny Mountains where you have uh, what they refer to as the Yankee Pass. And there, um, supposedly, they watch McCord site for a day, maybe a few days before they decide to act. On, at one o'clock, just after lunchtime, on April 1st, uh, 1756, most of the families that were here were in and about farming the area. Um, because of the attacks the year before, the families decided that the blockhouse, such as McCord's, would be a good place to, to stay at night. So what, what they did most likely, well, which is documented actually, they would go out during the day, farm, and in the evening come back, stay the night into the blockhouse. Well, most of them were out and about farming. One o'clock, Shingus, and half of his band, so 50 of his warriors come, and they break through the palisade and start firing towards the blockhouse. Um, they ignite arrows with uh, fire and shoot flaming arrows at, at the house. In the upstairs is the women and children, or 27 inhabitants. Um, uh, Jean Lowry, who we'll, we will talk about, um, her five children, they're in the upstairs. Her, uh, Jean Lowry's husband is below. He takes a rifle, fires, kills one of the Indians, charging the next Indian, kills him. Um, pretty soon, out of the 27, 
there are 18 killed and uh, nine that are taken prisoner, um, most of which were uh, Jean Lowry and her five children. And um, also at this time, she is five or six months pregnant at the time. Um, so that is, that's what transpires that day. The other part of the band um, who we'll talk about here was uh, Captain Jacobs or named Taywei. Uh, he he was sent out to also um, create some mayhem as well, um, but uh, that's that's what happened on April first. Uh, you said prisoners were taken. What what fate would await a prisoner who was taken in a raid like that? Well, typically, it wasn't Fort McCord was kind of an anomaly with with some of these attacks that happened on the frontier. The main objective was to take prisoners, mainly women and children, and bring them back into the Ohio country and adopt them into their tribal communities, replacing uh, loved ones that had deceased previously to bring their number up. Because uh, most of the, the, the tribal communities saw, saw themselves as strength by numbers. It wasn't necessarily how much native blood you had in you. You could be a, a German or Scot-Irish you would be fully adopted into that into that community. Now, the same fate though did not always stand true for males over over the age of 16 or 18. Oftentimes, were not viewed as an asset for their community, and were seen as being uh, kind of a, a bit on the cantankerous side, and, and would cause other captives to flee their villages. Uh, so in this case, when you have the nine captives, most of which were, were women and children, they fared okay, but with the killing of the 18, that is something that is, that is a bit, that, that's, a, that's a revenge act right there. John, if you were to come to this site, which you have, uh, what evidence would you see from that battle that day? Well, like I said, the, the landowner, Les, is doing a great job in um, first of all, he's an excellent metal detectorist. So um, one way you can find these sites if you want to pinpoint the exact location and there's some question as to where it might be exactly in these fields. Um, the first thing I've been doing uh, is um, you can do two things. You can dig for it and expect to find it or you can use a metal detector and start to establish some zones of period artifacts. So um, the things that are getting us very interested here um, are actually cluing in on 1755 buttons, um, buckles, anything that a blacksmith would create and that would, you know, that's not post-Revolutionary uh, War farm equipment. You can tell when, uh, when you're looking at a piece that's either, you know, copper um, or, uh, or hand-wrought iron. There's a very good chance that it belongs to this time period. Also, um, pieces of tack, wagons, uh, saddles, all those things have, there's all sorts of metal that falls off of them. So we're finding these clouds of, uh, you know, bridle tacks and buckles and um, eventually you would look, at, you know, we did this at Fort Necessity with a metal detecting session. We were trying to determine where the French firing line was by 
metal detecting and finding clusters of lead. So you can start to draw on a map where people are standing. So that's one thing you could potentially do is start looking at where are your lead balls clustering, um, what, what's their condition, are they fired and mushroomed out, or are they unfired balls? There's, there's all sorts of uh, kind of diagnostic, almost forensic information in the material culture. Well, the fort was burned, you could tell that as well? Indeed. There, there should be a palisade post or a foundation, um, charred wood, you know, uh, not more than a foot or two under the ground is very well preserved typically. Um, like at Fort Shirley, the posts are in the palisade trench once you get below the plow zone. Uh, and some of those are charred. So, in fact, charring helps preserve wood archaeologically. So that would actually be a plus for us. Uh, now, far more than an attack on a fort or a blockhouse, this was really an attack on a community in a lot of ways. So how would a community react to something like this? Well, they would react, um, which was typical at the time, is that they would try to um, assemble, figure out what happened, and then send a, an attack force to pursue. Um, and that, that's exactly what happened here. Um, so after the attack, so one o'clock was the attack on, on the first. Um, sometime, we, I don't, we don't know exactly when, but sometime later in that day, on April 1st, um, Alexander Culberson, who was the captain of a newly, relatively newly formed associated company of uh, Pennsylvania Provincials, he, he lives in um, present-day Letterkenny Township, which is about 10 to 12 miles away. And most of his men that make up his associated company live around, uh, which, which, which back then they referred to as the Rocky Spring Settlement, um, between there and present-day Shippensburg. Shippensburg is about 18 miles from there. Um, so what happens is he, is, he, is, he works at assembling the company, um, and he acquires around 30 men. Most likely what happened is by the time we're, again, we're, we're traveling an 18th century method of, of movement here. So it could be, it was most likely horseback. Somebody from the McCord settlement either heard or somebody close by heard about, heard what was going on, sent uh, somebody on a horse east to notify Culbertson, who was the local, um, basically a local commander in a sense, and to assemble uh, the men. They would have, they came back to the Fort McCord site, um, most likely the next morning after they had assembled at Culbertson's. They came here on April 2nd. They would have seen the charred remains, seen if there was any survivors, talked to somebody who was maybe here at the time that witnessed it, and then they would have been hot on the trail of, of Shingus, his Delawares, and the captives. And we know that they went through the they went they went as they came, uh, which was through the the Yankee Gap, um, over the over into Bear Valley and the Horse Valley, um, and west uh, to a rendezvous point. Um, but they would have been on they would have been on hot pursuit by the second. Now this could be an important point. Um, they didn't wait for the colony of Pennsylvania to respond militarily. Uh, why was that? Well, at this point, at this point. Uh, the colony of Pennsylvania, um, which, which Quake, most, most part Quaker government at the time, is still weighing the option of whether or not this is a real war or not, whether or not these threats are authentic. 
um, and they don't want to get behind funding a standing army. You got to you have to remember up to this point, up to the French and Indian War, there were no wars in Pennsylvania. Uh, as a colony, the only thing that there was was uh, basically border disputes between neighboring colonies. Um, so what what really transpires is is that you're not going to get any help from from uh, the city of brotherly love here. In this case, you have to go out on your own, and so that's why you start to see associated companies, not militias, um, as other colon as other colonies have not militias. Militias were mainly paid for and supplied by the colony. In this case, you have local civilians that take arms themselves and form together to protect their own. Uh, I've used this comparison before. I'll put it to the test. Is this sort of like a volunteer fire company in a way? You got it. <laughs> this is this is Culbertson's volunteer brigade in that way. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, so uh, they're on the move. Uh, what are they going to do? Well, they're gonna they're gonna retrace Shingus's steps, um, like I like I mentioned before. Um, they know the they know the trails. The trails are pretty recognizable. They're they're passes they're passes of least resistance through through the mountains. Um, yet there's no roads. There's no highways at that time. These are the roads and highways. Um, there are traders that use certain paths. So it's not it's not a totally unknown thing of oh how did they. How did these Indians get here and how did they go? Um, it's pretty apparent. But what, what the advantage that the Indians have, even though they're being slowed by, a, uh, um, by Jean Lowry, who's five or six months pregnant and captives, is that the Indians have a long standing of wanting to move as fast as you can after a hit. After they hit, they move as fast as they can. That first 24 hours, they move without stopping until they get to the rendezvous point. Um, Culbertson and his men know this, so, but they still tread cautiously, and they move, um, and within, and they move, um, there is an account that says that Culbertson, uh, they, they travel overnight, which would be the, which would be into April 3rd, um, which is a Saturday, and they get to Fort Littleton, most likely sometime in the morning, early morning, if not right at the break of dawn, um, they get to Fort Littleton, and they, they come upon Fort Littleton and find out that the crew there under Captain Hans Hamilton has no clue that there was even an attack at Fort McCord. Again, there's no cell phones, there's no uh, direct dialing in here on this type of thing. They, uh, they were completely unaware that there were uh, French Indians, French uh, allied um, Delaware Indians out there. And so Culbertson, uh, and his men, they, they tell him what happened. His 30 men are there. Han Captain Hamilton agrees to give, uh, to supply um, Culbertson's men with um, roughly 18 to 20 additional. So Culbertson's um, force swells to 50. Uh, we have uh, an Indian force unaware that this group of, of uh, frontiersmen are coming toward them. Take us through the Battle of Sidling Hill. Okay. So one of the things I failed to mention is that uh, the distance, um, like I mentioned that Culbertson was about 10 to 12 miles from the Fort McCord site. From Fort McCord, um, now not driving, but travel distance through, tra tr through trails, you're about 20 to 25 miles um, walking distance to Fort Littleton. Um, once they got to Fort Littleton and they found out that 
the crew there did not know what was going on. Their number swelled to 50. They then decided that, well, this Indian, they were, they were seeing traces of, of, of Shingas and his men and his warriors, but uh, they were not quite sure still where they were. They figured that they weren't any farther south um, because uh, the, the crew at Fort Littleton did not see them pass by. And they figured that they wouldn't go farther north than, than Fort Shirley uh, that was uh, uh, manned by uh, Captain Mercer to the north. So that they knew, they knew that uh, Shingus and his warriors had to be somewhere in between. So what they decided to do is that, if you look at where Fort Littleton is on the map today, you can see that there's a little creek that runs by there called the Little Ogwick. And what they do is that they decide um, on the 3rd, still, this is still the 3rd on Saturday, they decide to uh, debark from the fort, travel north on the Little Ogwick, uh, which is a bit windy, um, not as windy as the Jig here, but, but it's windy. And they go five miles up the creek where they come to the confluence of the Little Ogwick and the Sidling Hill Creek that's in present-day Maddensville, Pennsylvania. Um, now, uh, what I'm but about to get into is uh, the site itself has never been uh, dug, um, but some, a lot of the sources indicate just on geography that it's most likely in, in Maddensville and the confluence of these two creeks. So with that said, Culbertson and his men, they arrive there sometime in the evening on the third, and they see fires in the distance. They come to a, uh, a rocky cliff that's at the bend of the Sidling Hill Creek. And, and as a scout approached this, this, uh, this cliff, they see the fires of Shingus, his warriors, and the captives camped um, on the other side of the creek in a bend. They had located Shingus. Culbertson and his men decide to retreat back for the evening, uh, camp out and wait for morning uh, to have to perform a, a, an attack at dawn. Which, if you're into, if you know anything about European tactics, um, that is perfect for a, 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 a tactician of the 18th century. Um, symbol. Get, a, get somewhat of a night's rest, attack in the morning, uh, which is what they did. Um, they forded down an area today uh, referred to as Anderson's Grove. It's a, it's a low marshy area that is at the point of the confluence of the creeks. They go to cross the creeks, catching Shingus and his men and the captives completely by surprise. Shingus and his warriors flee leaving arms and captives behind. There is an elation of joy by Jean Lowry, as she describes uh, a few years later when she published um, her memoirs in 1760, about the elation of seeing her neighbors come there to her rescue. She embraced them, her children, some of the others from the Fort McCord site. They go to a hill, they rendezvous um, there um, for a brief moment until uh, uh, Chief Chingus's second in command, Captain Jacobs or um, Tewa A, arrives. 
at the rendezvous point that him and that uh, him and Chingus had decided on previously. To, to Captain Jacob's surprise, he gets there and finds Shingus gone, but he finds Culbertson and his men. Uh, Captain Jacobs immediately goes to uh, semi, form a semicircle, which is the typical Indian method of, of uh, uh, tactical uh, combat, and, and attack Culbertson and his men, who are completely not expecting this. They felt they had thought that they had won the day. At this point, with arms already arms still on the field, Shingus and his warriors come back onto the scene, pick up their arms, and totally encircle Culbertson, his men, and the captives. Um, very, very difficult position for Culbertson. Um, out of Culbertson's roughly 50 men, um, they're, they're outnumbered almost two to one. Um, by uh, Shingus and Captain Jacobs and their warriors. There is a battle that lasts for two and a half hours. Um, one of the survivors, uh, a private from Fort Littleton, notes later that he set his watch at the beginning of the attack, uh, so to between two and a two and a half hours. Um, there are references to um, the men, all the men firing, uh, going through all their ammunition, which which they reference as being 24 rounds. Um, they have to break through the, uh, the encirclement and flee towards the direction and flee south towards Fort Littleton. Um, they leave uh, roughly 18, there's 18 dead. Uh, well, they leave 18 on the battlefield and, there's, and there are uh, roughly 12 to 14 wounded that flee back to Fort Littleton. Uh, one of the wounded is the doctor, the only doctor at uh, Fort Littleton uh, was one of the wounded um, ones there. Um, and also um, who was killed in the battle was that uh, Captain Culbertson was killed during the, uh, on the scene when, um, uh, when uh, Captain Jacobs shows up. The only uh, native fatalities, uh, Gene Lowry writes about one of the Indians was killed and one wounded um, during the first stage of the battle. The second stage, uh, we do not know how many, uh, how many uh, Indians are killed. There's an Indian ally who's, who is located at um, uh, Fort Littleton who after the battle comes back with a scalp and claims it was Captain Jacob's scalp. Well, a few months later, we find out that it's not Captain Jacob's scalp because he's still out there terrorizing. Um, uh, there are an express um, sent from uh, Fort Littleton once the men return about this disastrous defeat to Fort Shirley. They want to try to acquire the services of Dr. Hugh Mercer, uh, who is the captain at Fort Shirley as well, to come there and assist. He can't leave right away because of the threat of the 100 natives um, running about. Um, so as you can see, it really, uh, this, this action really uh, sets, sets this area on its, on its ear, per se. Uh, why do you think the Indians had so much success because uh, the men of Cumberland County were certainly motivated. Uh, they seemed to be prepared. They were there the night before. What do you think was the biggest difference maker? 
the, well, the surprise. Uh, they, they, they had underestimated uh, the uh, native, um, the native contingent that was there. Um, you figure they arrive there, they scope it out, battle plan on the third. They come down the morning of the fourth, which was a Sunday, by the way. Um, the Gene Lowry writes about it being the Sabbath day. Um, uh, that that didn't have any bearing on this on on the outcome. But uh, what happens is is that they they end up. Uh, underestimating their foe um, and you can imagine the jubilation it would have been like Culbertson and his men they, they travel almost 30 miles they get there they kill one Indian they wound one um, none of their none of their men are injured at all it's a complete it looks like a complete success and it goes completely 180 with being surrounded and almost completely annihilated by Captain Jacobs and, uh, and his force who were coming back to, to rendezvous with Shingas. Uh, a lot of us are used to battles being very neat as far as uh, when they begin, when they end. This battle, no such luck. There is some controversy about the, the date of the event. Can we talk about that? Yes, there's a, there's a couple of uh, contemporary sources from, from the period, dated letters that, talk, that say, uh, that, that list April 2nd as the date. Um, and then there are some that list April 4th as the date. Um, my, my opinion is that it was the 4th. I don't see how um, you could have uh, Culbertson and his men get, receive word on the, on the 1st, assemble on the 1st, march 30 miles over the 1st and into the 2nd, get to Fort Littleton, acquire the additional manpower, and then get to the location and battle for two and a half hours. I don't see how that's, that's possible in a little over a 24 hour period. What is possible is, is April 4th. And, and um, as I mentioned before, is that Jean Lowry, her, her uh, account on this is published in 1760 in Philadelphia after her return. Um, and she writes that, now she writes that it happened on the Sabbath day on the, on the 5th of April. But if you, but if you, do, uh, if you do your homework and look back into uh, the calendar of what April 4th, 1756 was, is that it was a Sunday. So she was mostly mistaken on the 5th, but saying the Sabbath day, she would have remembered what day that was. She knew in her accounts that they had crossed two mountains, that they were on the run for three days. So putting it on the fourth makes a lot of sense. You also have um, Captain uh, Hans Hamilton. He, he writes a letter to uh, either Fort Shirley or to the governor of, or by way of the governor, or to the governor of Pennsylvania through by way of Fort Shirley, that uh, about the account, and this was done at eight o'clock in the evening at Fort Littleton, um, and it's written on the 4th, and he writes about the uh, distress and about they feared that their doctor was killed during the attack, which uh, their doctor, Jameson, was his name, Ensign uh, Jameson, he ends up, uh, he was left on the battlefield for dead, but then two, two days later, he finds his way back to Fort Littleton. Um, so, you, so you have some accounts, you have a number of accounts there that really lean towards the 4th as being the probable uh, date of the battle. 
John, there's some mystery regarding where this battle happened. Uh, in your opinion, do you believe this site could be positively identified through archaeological tactics we have today? It is possible um, because, you know, certainly it's it's a chance encounter. There's no structure or anything to focus our attention there. Um, what you're going to need to find are artifacts. And if, if you just mentioned that, say, um, 50 men have 24 rounds and expended all of them, that's how much lead you have out there to start finding these clusters of lead, essentially. Um, that's how you would prove it on the ground, but you would also have to use the, what we know from the written record to kind of, and you know, um, put that geography together of the bend of the river and the opposite bank, and uh, you know. Um, but to honest to God, say it's the definite location. It's it would I would say you know clusters of lead balls, military you know weaponry, pieces of gun parts, um, buttons. You know these wouldn't have been. British regulars, so you're not going to find a bunch of standardized British buttons around, but uh, you would certainly find personal effects and personal adornment. It's going to be looking for a needle in a haystack at, at that point, though. Um, it's hard enough to find McCord's Fort, and there was a structure and a palisade here. Uh, how does the colony of Pennsylvania respond to this? This seems like a traumatic event. It is, it is a traumatic event. Um, uh, one of the things I didn't mention is that there was uh, Culbertson and his men, there were 50, 50 men and there were uh, roughly about about 27 about 27 to 30 casualties um, in this event and it was a, it was a very high casualty rate for uh, a battle um, of the period uh, about over 60 percent of of the men that were involved that were culbertson's force and and the uh the pennsylvania the uh, pennsylvanians uh, located at fort littleton killed or uh, wounded. Um, once word got back to Philadelphia about what was going on, um, about the combined, uh, the combined tragedy of both McCord and the Siling Hill battle, this was the breaking point for, uh, this was the breaking point for the colony in the way of supplying um, military action. Um, this was not seen anymore as just being a maybe a war or something that's just going to pass. This was something that was not going to go away unless uh, unless there was some some serious infrastructure uh, put in place, and and that's what you start to see. Um, there are different es episodes of people going to Philadelphia with bodies. Um, from different accounts, bodies of deceased loved ones from Indian attacks that bring them to, the, to, uh, uh, to Philadelphia for the people to finally see that this is really happening. Because um, uh, there's a, a bit of um, uh, naive, naive, naivete from uh, the, the Quaker assembly that, that these Indians that have been allied and have been part of uh, William Penn's dream for this peaceful kingdom um, could not be doing such horrible acts, um, which, which, which they soon saw was uh, the, their eyes were soon opened. Um, so you started to see the uh, the assembling of of three companies of Pennsylvania um, battalions. Um, there are uh, hundreds of men that that come and and volunteer. Uh, 
to extend their services into a paid, uh, to be paid by the colony, outfitted by the colony, um, which then it ends up turning into a full British uh, military expedition and the Forbes uh, campaign, which the Forbes campaign comes again, it, co it comes back through this area that we're located in Fort McCord. Um, so this area is traversed by activities before, before during, and after um, during the French and Indian War period. Uh, what do we think the overall legacy of this event should be? What's the takeaway? Um, the, well, the, take, the takeaway is uh, that uh, the event itself really changed, it really changed the colony of Pennsylvania, and it really uh, brought the colony into play with the other colonies that are, um, that have been in a conflict with, with uh, the empire of France uh, for years and with uh, enemy Indians for years. And so finally got Pennsylvania into, so there were certain actors in Pennsylvania at the time, like Benjamin Franklin, who was trying for um, uh, a couple years up to that point to get Pennsylvania to do something about not having a defense, about, about uh, not having any force. And that changed after, after what, ha what transpired at McCord and, uh, and Siling Hill. Also, the fact that um, you had a few captives that went that were dragged all the way back to Catanning from McCord. Four months later, you have Fort Granville being taken, and uh, you know John Armstrong's brother is killed there. And John Armstrong, who eventually you know sets off on the Catanning expedition, provided this one pulse from the colony to kind of you know, make an impression on the natives and to sort of sh make them a little more shy about, or at least that was the, the hope, to, to make them think twice about running so many raids. Um, you know, that was a very costly mission. The Catanning expedition was successful, but they lost lots and lots of folks, and Pennsylvania wasn't going to be able to, uh, to keep throwing a bunch of those operations um, towards the west. So the new uh, model became a protected advance of the Forbes Road. Um, but it's really neat to, to track these individuals, you know, through history and, and across the cultural landscape here and, and knit it together. And it really takes, you know, there's, there's a lot to consider. Um, so between the material evidence and the, the written record, I think there's a lot to, of information uh, exchange and also, you know, interdisciplinary work that kind of carries us forward in understanding these events. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. Remember to pick up a copy of our new guidebook, Battlefield, Pennsylvania, written by yours truly, available now. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at pcntv.com. For everybody here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.